0: Psalm 2, verses 1 through 12. Um, Let me just very briefly pray for the blessing on the preaching of God's word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please come as you have promised and do as you have said. We pray that we would know you as the triune God who is the personal God who speaks. We pray with Samuel that we may truly be able to say this evening, each one of us speak, Lord, for your servant hears. We pray that you would speak a word of redemption and grace and wisdom and understanding, that you enlighten our minds and our hearts in the knowledge of the truth and in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray that you would build us up in him, that you would root us in him, that you would ground us in the faith, and that you would make us to see more of his mediatorial glory. And we pray these things through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Uh, Psalm 1, 2. There, I've already messed up. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The only time, incidentally, we're ever told that the Lord laughs At the wicked here. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. He will terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of your earth. Your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise; be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God. Indoors forever. Well, one thing you may not know about me is that from my very earliest childhood experience, one thing I've always wished I could do that I can't do very well is harmonize when I sing. I have wished I could do that because God has ordained harmony. He's ordained harmony in singing, He's ordained parts. He has created a world in which He wants His people to sing His praises and He loves. When his people join in the chorus together, singing in unison and yet singing those different parts. Well, you have something of that in the psalms. And in this psalm in particular, you have a four-part harmony in this psalm. The psalm divides very nicely into four parts. And yet one of the things that you'll notice very quickly is that one of the parts is very discordant. There's a reason why I don't try to sing harmony Because I know that if I do, somebody is going to hear me singing out of tune, and they're going to think, man, that guy just ruined the song for us. And if you look at Psalm 2, you're going to notice that there are four parts. There is one voice, as it were, in verses 1 through 3, and then there is a second voice in verses 4 through 6. There is a third voice in verses 7 through 9, and there is a fourth voice in 10 through 12. There are four parts to this psalm. And they are all working together, but the last three are really answering uh, the discordant voice in the first part of the psalm. Now, as Travis noted last Sunday evening, the psalms were compiled, maybe not by Ezra, maybe by Hezekiah, but they were compiled in a very specific way. Um, Whoever did put the psalms together in church history did so with a very keen eye as to what psalms had common themes. Uh, Whoever compiled the psalms saw common themes, saw um, that different psalms ought to go together. And Psalm 1 and 2, uh, standing at the head of the great book of psalms, this great inspired hymn book, are certainly meant to go together. The old writers sometimes used to say that Psalm 1 and 2 were like the pillars in Solomon's temple. When you walked into the temple, those pillars were the first things that you saw. Those those were the first two psalms as you go into the temple of God's praises in the book of Psalms. And one of the things that you'll notice very quickly before we look at the four parts and the four voices in this psalm is that there are these sort of parallels, very clear parallels, taking place in parts of Psalm 1 and parts of Psalm 2. Psalm 1, you'll remember, is contrasting the righteous with the wicked. And remember, the wicked uh, are plotting wicked schemes. Notice there, back in Psalm 1, where the righteous man is, is told not to walk in the counsel of the wicked. But he is to meditate day and night on God's law, verse 2. Notice in Psalm 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together. There is that first parallel. They are plotting and scheming, they are meditating together against the covenant Lord and against his Christ. There is a collective, nationalistic hostility to the Lord. There is a meditation of the wicked It is a unified meditation. It is all aimed against the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And then you'll notice that there is something of another parallel between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. In Psalm 1, remember, the wicked are said to sit in the seat of the scoffers. Uh, The righteous is warned not to sit in the seat of the scoffers. That's The ultimate progression, the wicked become comfortable and they sit there in their places of scheming and wickedness and scoffing. And notice that Psalm 2 tells us that the Lord, verse 4, sits in the heavens and laughs. You see, there is this intentional parallel between the themes in Psalm 1 and the themes in Psalm 2. Now, I think there's also something of a development In Psalm 1, you have the righteous man who is first and foremost the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only righteous one. He is the one who always listens to the voice of the Father. He is the one who keeps himself from the counsel of the wicked. He was the one that did not uh, stand in the way of the wicked. He did not sit in the seat of the scoffers. And he is contrasted, remember, with the wicked in all of their futility. But uh, notice there is a development. The wicked in Psalm 1 are seen as a collective group of individuals and in psalm 2 it becomes this collective nationalistic element the wicked are not just content to bring themselves together collectively in their wickedness but now they set up a counterfeit kingdom to the kingdom of god and they live collectively as perverse rulers against the rule of the covenant lord of heaven and earth there is Now, that national element, the kings of the earth, the rulers, take counsel together. They're not content to allow wickedness to run rampant with individuals. There must be this collective kingdom principle of wickedness. Now, that's going to become important because Psalm 2 is really telling us about the second Adam. Um, We have to read Psalm 2 in light of the story of the garden. Remember, Adam was a king. He was in the garden. He was given dominion. God told Adam to rule and to, to show forth his image and his glory and to take the garden out and to turn the world into the garden. The work that God gave Adam was to be that king-priest in the garden and to extend the borders of the garden out and to fill the earth. And Adam and Eve together were to be fruitful and to multiply, and they were to have dominion. And they were to show forth the image of God. They were to say, this is what God is like. We are what God is like. We know what God looks like because we have been made in his image and we've been made to reflect that. And yet what we see in Psalm 2 is how uh, far far we have fallen. We see how perverse and how distorted the image of God has become and that nothing less than hostility and persecution against the very image of God renewed in the church is the full manifestation of the wickedness of the wicked who are like the chaff in Psalm 1. Which is driven away by the wind. Now, we're going to see those four voices in this this psalm um, this evening. First, we're going to consider the voice of the wicked rulers. Then we're going to consider the voice of the father. Then we're going to consider the voice of the son. And finally, we're going to consider the voice of the messengers. Well, notice as the psalm opens, there is that question: "Why?" The psalmist is not he's not asking that question as if he lacks knowledge. He is he is expressing the futility. Of the world and all of its fallenness and all of its wickedness and all of its hostility against God. Why do the nations rage? What a futile and foolish thing. Why do the kings of the earth set themselves? Why do the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed? What good is it going to do them? He's not asking the question, trying to learn anything. He's not asking in puzzlement. He's saying this is the most ludicrous thing in all the world, and yet it is the very thing with which we are confronted every day of our life, in every society, in every nation of the world, under heaven. The nations have set themselves. Notice the people plot in vain. The nations rage. The kings set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, there's the first voice, They are saying together, let us break his bonds in pieces and cast his cords from us. Now, sometimes, and I just heard a theologian that I I so greatly respect say this, I think he's right, we are far too nice as Christians. Oftentimes we are far too nice. We're far too nice toward idolatrous nations. We're far too nice toward uh, those who have set themselves against god and his christ there's nothing nice about what the psalmist is writing here the psalmist is not playing games with the wicked world look at what the world is like the nations have set themselves in vain they've plotted in vain they've set themselves against the lord and his anointed they've said let us break the bonds between the covenant god and his redeemer in pieces let's cast them away from us the way the way perhaps uh, the, the yoke on an oxen would be ripped off of the animal and cast away. That's the idea of what the psalmist is trying to say. Let's free ourselves. One of the things that I found most intriguing about uh, Rachel Hollander's defense, her address to um, her sexual abuser... This past week is she cited C.S. Lewis from mere Christianity. And and as she stared Larry Nasser down, she said to him, she said, Larry, you are a wicked man and what you've done is wicked. And she said, you know, C.S. Lewis at one time said he wasn't a Christian because he saw all the injustice in the world. He saw all the ungodliness in the world. He saw all the corruption in the world. And he said, how, how can I be a Christian? How can I believe in a God who would allow a world to have so much injustice? And then Lewis said, but then I realized in order to understand corruption, you have to understand what the straight line is. And I realized there has to be a straight line. In order to understand the corruption, that this is, that this is wrong, I have to understand there's a straight line. And I realized that God's word is the straight line and God is the straight line. And we live in his world, and we only know evil when we know the good because we know it in contrast to the good. And she said, Larry, because I know what the straight line is, I can say what you did was wicked. Now, I think the psalmist is drawing us in, and he's saying, don't be deceived. The nations are not friendly to Christianity. The kings of the earth are not friendly. Idolatry is the height of hostility against the covenant God and his Christ. False religions, Islam, is an attempt for people to break apart the cord that exists between Yahweh and Christ, who is Yahweh, who is the anointed of the Lord. That's what that is. That is an attempt to break him, but that is plotting every false religion, every falsehood, everything that is not grounded on God's word. The straight line between the Lord and his anointed, his Messiah Every form of idolatry is wickedness and is plotting against the Lord and against his anointed. Notice, that's the only thing that we hear from that voice. That's the discordant voice in the song. Let us break their bonds apart. Let us cast their cords from us. Sinclair Ferguson said this actually should be a great help to us. I think it was Tertullian who said that the blood of the martyrs was seed that the more we're persecuted, the more we grow, the blood of the martyrs is seed. And Ferguson said, you know, this actually helps us when we understand that the persecution and the opposition of the world is not aimed at us ultimately. It's not aimed at Christians ultimately. It's aimed at Christ. The opposition of the world is aimed at Christ. And if we know that, we can endure the opposition that we get for Christ. It's actually a very important Component of the Christian life. Well, notice there's a second voice that comes into the psalm so hard on the heels of the first voice. Notice the psalmist in verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, obviously that's metaphorical. God isn't really up there bellowing out a big laugh, but it is so futile what the wicked are doing. It's so futile what fallen man does. That the only way the psalmist can explain it is that it's as if against their wickedness and their futility and trying to break apart the the connection between the covenant Lord and his redeemer. The only way, the best way that he can explain it is to say, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, isn't that a comforting thought? That in the midst of all the wickedness of this fallen world, and, and when people say, where is God? What is God doing? He's sitting in the heavens and he's laughing. He's not moved. The infinite God is not worried. He's not. When his people suffer persecution, he's not not biting his fingernails. The covenant Lord, the infinite God, the only God sits in the heavens and he laughs because he's going to hold the nations in derision. He's going to speak in his wrath and he's going to distress them in his great displeasure. You know, in Psalm 50, there's a sort of a development of this theme. And the psalmist says there, the Lord says through the psalmist, um, you, you consented with thieves, you consented with adulterers, you did all these things. He's, he's addressing the wicked nations and all the wicked actions of men. And he says, I remain silent. I didn't immediately respond in my justice and judgment. I remain silent and you thought that I was altogether like you. Isn't that interesting? Here the psalmist is saying, oh, don't think that the Lord is either moved or is approving or is like what we see and hear around us. That one voice, isn't that interesting? The voice, let us break their bonds and pieces and cast their cords from us, is the only voice we hear oftentimes on the horizontal earthly level around us. And yet notice... The Lord is in the heavens, he is laughing, he holds them in derision, he is going to speak in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And then notice what the Father says in verse 6, and we know it's God the Father because the Son will speak in a moment, but notice verse 6, he says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So what is God doing about all the wickedness in the world? What is he doing? Well, he's already done The most important thing, he has set his king, the Christ, on his holy hill in Zion. Now, there's a sense from when this psalm was written, a thousand years before Christ came, that that statement, my holy hill of Zion, is looking forward to Jerusalem and to Calvary, the hill, the mount on which Christ would be crucified. The king would hang on the cross The Father had set his king on his holy hill. And then he would raise him up to sit on the throne at his right hand in glory. When the the New Testament wants to find places that talk about the exaltation of Christ, the ascended glory of Christ sitting At the right hand of the Father, they go to this psalm, and they go to Psalm 110. The psalm is cited in Acts chapter 4 and Acts 13, and Hebrews 5, and the New Testament is constantly drawing on this theme. The Father has said, I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. And then there's another voice. There's a third voice. Notice verse 7. And this is so important. There are shifts. One of the tricky things when you read the Psalms is, who's speaking? That's a a very important principle when you're reading the Psalms. Who's speaking now? Sometimes David seems to be speaking. Sometimes the Lord, generally considered, seems to be speaking. But here it is the Son speaking. Notice this. I will... I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. This is the son speaking. I will tell the the decree. The king is speaking. The son is speaking. Um, Now, there have been commentators who have tried to say this is David. And um, this is a psalm that he wrote uh, at the time of his coronation as king. I think that they're wrong. Um, John Owen, the prince of the Puritan theologians, thinks that they're wrong. So if you think that it's David, you can go read Owen and argue with him. Because I think that Owen's right. This is Christ and only Christ speaking. Notice what the son says. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. David never inherited the nations. David's kingdom never spread to the corners of the earth. In fact, Solomon's kingdom, the son of David, actually did expand out. There is a sense where Solomon expanded out the borders of Israel, but Solomon never inherited the nations. There is only one son of David, whoever inherits all the nations, whoever has every knee bowing and every tongue confessing, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, that's amazing. A thousand years before he comes, this is the voice of the Son projecting out everything that he is going to come into the world to do. Um, You know, this is why, by the way, the nations hate Christ. What he says here is why the nations plot in vain. It's why they set themselves against him. Because the Father said to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nation's for your inheritance. Now, there's a question here, when when does when does that happen? And and I think it's the same question and the answer that we give to it is the same answer that we give to the question, what is Jesus doing when he goes to heaven at the ascension? Well, he answers that question by pouring his spirit out on his disciples. And he answers that question when the gospel begins to go to the nations. And when the nations begin to hear the good news and they begin to to come to the full light of gospel liberty and knowledge, and as Jesus sends the disciples out into the far reaches of the world that didn't know and hadn't heard, and he sends them out to proclaim the gospel and the redemption and the promise of the Father and that the Son has gone to the Father, the Son has gone to the Father and has asked the Father for the nations. He said, my Father, give me that for which I came into this world to receive as my own inheritance. Now, I don't know if you'll remember this, but when Jesus is being tempted by Satan, one of the most powerful temptations that the evil one levels against him, he says, he took him up on a high hill and he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. I actually think that that was a more potent temptation to the Son of God incarnate than being tempted to turn (laughs) stones into bread after 40 days of not eating anything. Because the Son knew that he had come into the world to get the nations for his inheritance. And here the evil one is preying on the Son, and in a sense he's saying to the Son, look, there's an easier way. There's an easier way for you to get the nations. There's an easier way than having to go the long, hard road of obedience to your father. There's an easier way than you having to hang on the cross under the wrath of God. There's an easier way for you to get the nations. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. And I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth in their glory. And I think that Jesus felt that temptation and I think we would be foolish to think that he didn't feel that temptation because the whole reason he came into the world was to gain the kingdoms of the earth back as the second Adam, to be the king of kings and the lord of lords, to have dominion and rule again for his father, to bring about the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells, to gain for himself a people out of every tongue, tribe, nation, and language, and here the evil one is saying, all you have to do is worship me and I'll give these nations that are now under my dominion to you. And the son says, get behind me. You shall worship the Lord and him only shall you serve. And then he picks himself up and he marches forward and he goes to the cross. And he hangs on the cross, and he does everything necessary to inherit the nations, and he ascends to the Father, and he says to the Father, I've done everything that we have agreed in the councils of eternity to do, and now I want these people, and these people, and these people, and this nation, and that nation to be mine. You know, I think oftentimes we have too small a view of Christianity, because on the one hand... You have people, I think, with false hopes who think there's going to come a time when everybody in the world is going to be Christianized and the whole earth. I mean, the prophets say the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that means there's going to be a time when before Christ comes, everybody everywhere is going to be converted. I don't think the Bible teaches that. On the other side, you have people that are sort of defeatist. Oh, the world is so bad and look how terrible everything's getting. And, you know, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Actually as wickedness rises and we see wickedness as it is in all its perversion, its pervasiveness, the Abrahamic covenant is spreading and Jesus is gathering a people for whom he's died out of every tongue, tribe, nation and language. He is plucking brands from the fire, from all the corners of the face of the earth. He's building his church. And one day, one day, Jesus is going to take all those kingdoms And the book of Revelation says that all those kingdoms are going to be brought into him. And all the gifts of the kings, Isaiah says, are going to be brought to him. And he's going to have all the glory of the nations for which he died and shed his blood. And he's going to hand that kingdom back to his father. And he's going to say, Father, they are yours. You have given them to me. Just as he prayed in John 17. They were yours. You have given them to me. I have kept them in your name. All that you have given me, I have lost none. I have laid down my life for them. And all the world is going to be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Jesus is going to be all the glory. You know, I love the words of that hymn um, The sands of time are sinking. I love how each verse ends with glory, glory dwells in Emmanuel's Lamb. The Lamb is all the glory. The Lamb is all the glory. There is a day coming when right now, when we go out into this world, it doesn't look like Jesus is all the glory. It doesn't look like what Christ is saying here in these verses. It doesn't look like the nations are bowing down to him. It doesn't look like this nation is bowing down to him. Um, That can be a problem to people's faith. Uh, It doesn't look like the world around us is squaring up with what the scriptures say, but there is a day coming when the Lamb will be all the glory. There's a day coming when you will see that the Father has given the Son all the nations, and all you will see is people serving him and praising him and loving him and worshiping him and saying, you are worthy. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God from your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's what John saw in that vision on Patmos. He saw the nations gathered before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with loud voices, you are worthy. There is a fourth voice. There's a fourth voice, and it is the voice um, of God's messenger. Uh, it is the voice, in a sense, of ministers of the gospel. It is the voice of the prophets crying out. They're crying out. Notice notice who they're crying out to. Notice verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Who are they addressing? It's one of the most fascinating parts of this psalm. The psalm opens with the kings plotting against the covenant Lord and against his Christ, trying to fight against in futility, fight against the Lord in futility. And the psalm ends with God's messengers going to the kings of the earth and pleading with them to kiss the sun lest they perish in their way when his wrath is kindled but a little. I think that's one of the most intriguing parts of the psalm. He sends his people to the very rulers who are plotting and taking counsel against him. And he is calling them to be reconciled to God. You know, it's reminiscent of that language of the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians where the Apostle says, we're pleading with you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You know, I've always found that intriguing. The Apostles aren't these sort of hipster preachers that we have in our day. Who, who say things like, you know, you're just, just, you know, you're almost there. Maybe you're not quite there yet, and if you just come on. No, they go into the nations, and they say, God commands everyone everywhere to repent. That's how the apostles preach. They go to the nations, and they say, God has appointed a day of judgment when he will judge the world by the man he has appointed, even Christ Jesus, and he commands all men everywhere to repent. That's apostolic preaching. The messenger goes to the nations. He says, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in his way when his wrath is kindled. But a little bluster, all those who take refuge in him now. It's very interesting. Um, where in the gospels... Do we find anyone kissing Christ? There are actually two places. Um, we find the sinful woman in Luke 7, who we've heard about most recently, who is crying at the feet of the Savior, and she is kissing his feet, and she is washing his feet with her tears. Jesus actually says to Simon the Pharisee, in whose house that incident occurred, He said to Simon, You gave me no kiss. That's fascinating. Kiss the Son. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. What does it look like to kiss the son? It means to embrace him. It means to own him. It means to weep over our sins at his feet and to say, he is my savior. He is my Lord. And I have gone to him and I love him and I need him and I will perish without him. And then the other time, as you well know, is when Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss I think that's fascinating. Kiss the son, the sinful woman does it in brokenness and belief, and repentance and trust. And Judas comes. And Jesus says to him, "Are you betraying? He calls him friend. Friend, are you betraying me with a kiss?" Um, You know, I think that's a word for us. I think we can we can pretend to love Christ. I think Judas was pretending. Even in that betrayal, he was. He was acting out this sort of hypocrisy as if he really cared for the Savior when he was handing him over to be crucified. Um, there's a word here for us. I am sure of that tonight. I think that as we walk out of this psalm, we want to ask ourselves the question, what voices are we listening to? I don't know if you ever do this when we sing in church. I'll sometimes hear a voice that, It's probably mine, a voice that's off. And and it just and I'll hear everybody singing and then I'll just hear one random voice that's kind of off to and it probably is mine I'm probably hearing myself and and I just think ooh that doesn't that doesn't go right. When we hear the voices around us in the nations, in the world, among the kings, among the rulers, among the politicians, among Hollywood actresses and actors and athletes and everybody else who's constantly speaking and they're raging against the Lord and they're raging against his Christ and they're raging against everything that we love and the truth, we should hear discordant grating sound to that. That shouldn't sit well on our ear. We should hear the plotting of the wicked And it should sound supremely wrong. And then we should hear the voice of the father saying, I have set my king on my holy hill. And then we should hear the voice of the son saying that the father told him he would give him the nations for his inheritance. And then we should hear the voice of his ministers crying with us to be reconciled to him and to kiss him and embrace him. And I want to leave you with this thought. One final thought It's not just come and kiss the son. It's not just embrace him. But part of the message that we're to listen to is that there is a day coming when those who will not embrace the son will perish under his wrath. That is an an essential part of the message. There is a day coming. Notice Jesus says this in verse 9. He says that the father told him, there is a day coming when you will break the nations with a rod of iron. Jesus actually picks up on this in Revelation 2 and 3 in the churches to Asia Minor. And he, he says, he who overcomes will sit with me on my throne and he will rule the nations together with me with a rod of iron. He picks up the very language of Psalm 2 again. And he says that we who overcome will join in him, with him, in ruling over the nations In judgment, we will stand against the wicked. If you're in him, you will stand against the wicked on that day. And we are going to see, and I'm going to leave you with this thought, there's a day coming, and it's coming sooner. It's coming fast. Um, The Apostle Paul says our salvation is nearer today than when we first believed. The clock is ticking. And there's a day coming when you will see in full everything that's said in Psalm 2. And that's all we're going to see, and that's all we're going to hear. is the truest and the realest and the most glorious thing let him who has ears to hear let him hear what the spirit says to the church this evening let me pray for us father in heaven we do pray that you would help us to listen to your voice and to the voice of your son and to the voice of your messengers we pray our god that you would give us a sense of reality as we make our way through this barren world and that you would help us to see the futility of the voices of the nations around us and the kings of the earth and the rulers who have set themselves against you. We pray, our God, that you would make us to see the glory of your son, that you would give us grace to embrace him, to kiss him, to pay him homage, to worship him. We pray, our God, that you would work in us to that end, that you would help us to take very seriously both the promises and the warnings. We thank you and praise you that there's a day coming when you will reveal in all of your glorious uh, fulfillment that the nations have been redeemed to sing your praises and to manifest your glory. We pray, our God, that you'd help us to see that now with the eyes of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.